Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. My guest today is Dr. Alan Watkins. He's a very prolific author. He's authored a series called Wicked and Wise. And what that focuses on is the world's wicked problems. Now, what are wicked problems? Well, they're concurrent, they're parallel, they are interdependent, they're complex. And if you try and fix a one-dimensional aspect to a wicked problem, all that's going to happen is you're going to move the symptoms somewhere else. Alan's been working with the boards of FTSE 250s, companies in the 10 to 100 billion range. He's worked in every market sector, every geography. And what we're going to be exploring today is the blind spots that leaders and organizations suffer from. Their it addiction, where real leadership starts, and what the final frontier is in solving these problems. We're going to dig into how technology can enable effectiveness over efficiency and really understanding the true organizational structure of your organization, because it bears little or no relation to the org chart that you've put in place, which I'm told by Alan reliably is 1910 technology. Things have moved on a bit. Alan, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Uh, Great to talk to you and uh, looking forward to a wide-ranging and stimulating (laughs) conversation. Excellent. First of all, Alan, would you mind giving us 90 seconds on your history and the kind of work that you've done? Yes, I've been doing this work with global leaders for the last 25 years, but I had an unusual entrance into this in that I was a jobbing physician for 12 years. So I worked in the NHS in the UK, but also the healthcare system in Australia and America for a dozen years. So I've been doing work with leaders for twice as long as I was a physician. So But training as a physician gives you a very unique insight uh, and a lot of skills that I now bring to bear on um, helping leaders uh, lead more effectively. Okay. Tell me what a wicked... Describe to me some wicked problems so people can get to grips with um, what we're actually talking about. Right. Well, those particular books uh, were really kicked off by me sitting on the couch one morning watching uh, the news Uh, and seeing uh, yet another story about the problems in the NHS. Uh, And I thought, my goodness, I've literally heard this identical piece almost on a weekly basis for 25 years. (laughs) It's like like it doesn't get any better. It's the same story. And then I thought, well, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because people talk a lot about, you know, how different the world is, the pace of change, and da-da-da-da. And I think, well, this problem hasn't changed at all. So it was a paradox. And I thought, that's interesting. There are clearly some problems that never get better. And that led me into an exploration of these sort of intractable problems. And the academic term for that is wicked. So it's not wicked in the sense of evil. It's wicked in the sense that it's beyond complicated. So as I dug into that, I discovered that there are six specific characteristics of a a wicked problem, which are they are multidimensional. And I'll explain that in a minute. They've got multiple causes, multiple symptoms, multiple stakeholders, and multiple solutions. And finally, just when you think you're getting a grip of them, they're constantly evolving. So um, if you want to look at the top 12 wicked issues in the world, I mean, uh, people will be quite familiar with these. Uh, Of course, front and center right now, probably the biggest wicked issue of all is climate change. And we just had COP26 in Glasgow. So that's the one that's going to kill us before AI takes over. (laughs) Um, so uh, but you know it's not just climate change there's many others as well well i mean if i look at the kind of wicked problems that are out there and the 
interconnectedness with them. If we look in business and in sales um, in particular, what I see is organizations throwing vast amounts of money, time, resource, and effort into one-dimensional point solutions because, uh, well, again, it's my uh, guess that they don't take enough time to step back and look upstream enough because virtually every problem that you are facing today is a byproduct of something you did or failed to do or said or failed to say upstream. And well, trying to solve a down, uh, an upstream cause by addressing it with a downstream solution to a symptom is never going to work. Well, in fact, uh, you're absolutely right, Marcus. And that's one of the main reasons I left uh, being a doctor is, you know, modern medical practice, if you're working uh, in hospitals, is you're working downstream, largely with people over the age of 85, trying to perform heroics in the last six months of their life. So 50% of all the money that's ever going to be spent on your health is spent in the last six months. Wow. So we've got a system which is designed to try and, you know, solve the problem after the horse has bolted. Uh, and I, for me, it was about two things, really, is you've got to get upstream. You've got to stop those problems happening in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, and also, you've got to do it at scale. So I found, I found when I was doctoring, if I was a, a consultant um, on the ward, I had you know 50, 50 patients on the ward, 115 outpatients. I only had 200 people's lives to improve. I thought, well, I'll go into general practice. I've got 2,000 in general practice, but you don't see 1,800 because they're well. So again, only 200 lives. So I thought I, I want to operate at scale. So for me, it was always about the reduction of human suffering at scale. So I thought, well, if I work with corporations, some of our clients have 350,000 employees. So if we improve the quality of leadership, that potentially improves the lives of 350,000. Now, if you take their families, then you're talking a million people. If you take the supply base, you're talking about 5 million people from one company, and we have 100 clients. So that gets you to scale. And of course, the type of suffering you see in corporations is different than you see on the medical ward. It is upstream. You know, it's the early stages of where people get into bad habits. They get, as we said, it addicted. They get focused on the wrong thing, turned around, confused. And 30 years of that eventually leads to the stuff that you see on the medical wards. Well, it's really interesting. Traditional Chinese doctors get paid when you're well. They have to pay for your treatment when you're sick. Now, compensation drives behavior. If you look at our uh, medical system and the way the pharmaceutical lobby is set up, I think it was in 2018, to give you an idea of just how broken uh, the system is, one of the investment banks ran a webinar. And the topic of the talk was is curing people a good business model? Now, I get it, but to even contemplate running a webinar like that has to suggest that people's souls have been lost. Exactly. I mean, how could you even contemplate? Exactly. And so, so one can't ask these difficult questions. I saw the same. I did some years ago, I did some work in prisons, right? And there are so many people's livelihood dependent on offenders reoffending. You know, so um, uh, if we actually solved the problem, if we actually genuinely rehabilitated people in prisons and they came out and didn't reoffend, you wouldn't need as many probation officers, you wouldn't need as many lawyers, you wouldn't need like an awful lot of people's livelihoods are dependent on the fact that people reoffend. And the same is true, uh, as you just pointed out, in health is, but it's kind of heresy to even pose such questions. And, and what it is, is when you're looking at complex, wicked systems, to have the sort of uh, audacity to say, well, hang on a minute, 
let's take a step back. Let's think about, are we really solving the problems that we're facing? So if you look at uh, the health system, the leading cause of death uh, in the UK, heart disease, has been the leading cause of death since 1950. So despite billions of pounds being spent on cardiovascular research, it's still the number one problem. But it's kind of uh, unpopular to say, well, let's actually have a look at this system properly. Let's see how could we really make this better? How could we create a, a healthcare system for the 21st century? Now, that's pretty unpopular to say. But if we don't have the courage to ask these kind of questions, then we'll never really improve any of these complex systems. I'm going to come back to that. But what I'd like to do, first of all, is define what you mean by an it addiction. Yes. So when we're working with leaders, you know, whether it's a 10 million uh, company or 100 billion, we, we do the, the whole range. The first conversation we have is, OK, well, let's start with what you know and understand. So let's make a list of all the things on your plate. And this was based on some research we did when we, uh, a few years ago, we interviewed 500 global CEOs. So Jack Ma in China, Michael Dell in the USA, Richard Branson in the UK, a whole bunch of things, uh, leaders or CEOs around the world, trying to figure out how do they think about their business. And what we discovered is they spend 80 to 90% of their time focused on short-term operational issues. And the reason they do is that's why you get hired, that's why you get fired. If you don't deliver the quarterly performance, you're out, doesn't matter who you are. And so, not surprisingly, that's what they focus on. So, you know, performance management systems, you know, top line, bottom line, cost base, all the sort of traditional levers of business that leaders have to pull to drive the outcome that they're required to drive. So that's what they get addicted to is a short-term target, task, goal, metric, outcome. And then a few of the better ones didn't just focus on this year's plan and keeping the cost base down and, and driving you know, the sales. A few of them started to thought, think about the strategic uh, landscape, you know, horizon two, horizon three, as it's called, in the next two to five years. Where's this company going? You know, So those are the big five things of vision, ambition, purpose, strategy, governance. So a few of the better leaders thought about that. But if you take the operational plan, the strategic frame, you could combine those as this is what we're doing short-term and long-term. So that's what we call the world of it. What is it that I'm doing? My to-do list, if you will, rational, objective, observable phenomena. And that's where nearly all their attention goes, largely on the short-term, but a few on the longer-term. And then we point out, and some of them actually, in fairness, have sort of twigged that, as Peter Drucker said many years ago, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So you can have the best plan in the world, but if everybody hates each other, you can't deliver the plan. So a lot of leaders have sort of become aware of culture being an important thing, company values being an important thing, trust being an important thing, team dynamics becoming an important thing. So that's a different set of phenomena. That's not it phenomena. That's not the world of doing. This is the world of relating. So this is the interpersonal world rather than the rational objective world. And ironically, the world they pay virtually no attention to is their inner world, their being. So not doing or relating, but being. Who am I as a human being? So that's what we call the world of I. So we're saying the world is actually three-dimensional. There is an inner world. So as I'm talking right now, people will be having thoughts and feelings about what I'm saying. That's their eye right now. 
you know, you and I are relating to each other through this podcast. That's our we, Marcus. You know, we're getting on with each other and, and bantering backwards and forwards. And what are we doing? We're recording a podcast. So in every moment of our life, there is an I, a we, and an it. So our life is three-dimensional, not one-dimensional. And one of the reasons that wicked problems are wicked problems is we see the problem as one-dimensional. We see it just as a technical, observable problem out there. And we don't realize that if we don't evolve in the I and the we, we will never sustain the it solution. So we say that to be a great leader, you have to be four-dimensional. So the three dimensions of I, we, and it. And the fourth dimension is the sophistication of your I, the sophistication of the we, and the sophistication of the it. If all you're ever focused on is improving the it, and you haven't addressed the inner motivation of the individual, and you haven't addressed the quality of relationships, the it solution, to matter how good it is, will not sustain. And that's what you see in climate change. So the thing, I did a TED talk recently about this, post-COP26, saying the thing that they didn't ever speak about at COP was I and we. Well, if people aren't aware enough of the urgency of the problem, they're not going to take action quick enough. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And if we're not good enough at creating a sort of a global movement, a sort of Manhattan project, because the clock's ticking, we're going to go past one and a half degrees in less than eight years, the clock is ticking, and we still haven't got our act together. We're still talking nonsense about, you know, net zero, which is not going to solve the problem at all. This is what baffles me about the whole climate change issue. Everyone talks about being carbon neutral. You've got to be carbon negative if you're going to do right. anything about it. All you're doing by being carbon neutral is putting a sticking plaster on the cancer. Well, it's the greenwashing, right? It's, it's, yeah. If you think of the, uh, I heard it put by a friend of mine, uh, Marcus Helmsley said it nicely, said, actually, think of as fly tipping. We've been fly tipping, you know, putting all our crap into the atmosphere for years and years and years. And all these companies are trying to look good by saying, oh, by 2050 or 2070, we promise to stop fly tipping. Uh, it's like, duh, you should yeah. stop right now. I mean, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually stop fly tipping. No, you should stop right now. And actually, that even if you did, that won't solve the problem. You've got to carbon capture. You've got to get carbon out of the atmosphere. You've got to reduce the toxic dump size. That's what's really going to solve well, the problem. My pal, Dennis Hatema Ecology, that they are committed to reduce carbon in the atmosphere by 50%. Hmm. Now, in order to do that, they need to plant a million trees a day and a whole load of other projects as well. What's really interesting is how often, and I see this with the greenwashing, but I also see it across the board when people are building their tech stack. They buy stuff and then they implement it without engaging their people. They implement it for the wrong reasons. So I look at CRM. Well over 88% are failing, or around 88% are failing to achieve the objective. And more often than not, it's because they don't talk to the poor buggers who are going to use it. And it's put in in order to give command and control and audit capability to senior leadership, not for the real purpose, which is to help salespeople sell more faster to more people for more money more often. So that, now that's exactly correct. So that's what we call a failure of we. You've got an it solution, the CRM. It's a, a system a process, an observable thing out there. But if we don't train up our people, if we don't relate to our people and help them 
use that system. So if we don't have that kind of culture of facilitation and empowerment, doesn't matter how good your CRM is, it won't work. So that's well, this, all, all it and no we. This, again, speaks to another critical and massive trend. I look at all the money that is thrown away on training every single year. And often training is implemented because it's a tick in the box exercise. Other times it's managers saying, I can't tell Tim that he's shit. So let's put everyone on the training program. And there's no reinforcement. If you coach after you train, you get a 49 times higher implementation rate. Now, no one buys training because they want training. They buy training because they want performance to improve. Right. And performance only improves if you understand the difference between learning, which is the acquisition of skills, knowledge and experience and development. The game changer is I can acquire, you know, I've gone on the Harvard uh, or INSEAD advanced leadership program for $60,000 for three months. It's a residential thing, you know, and I went in an arsehole and I came out an arsehole. <laughs> Just a bit more knowledgeable. Right. So it didn't. And many acronyms as well. (laughs) Yes. So nothing really changed. I didn't develop. I just became more knowledgeable. So knowledge acquisition is okay and important. But if you don't convert the learning into a change in you as a human being, then there hasn't been any real change. I've just become more knowledge. So you'll see L and D departments in many organizations around the world. It's all L and no D. You know, we talk about... Well, it's not, actually. It's training. It's not learning. Yeah. And therein lies... It's even worse. ...fundamentally critical difference. Learning, uh, the onus is on the individual to acquire and appropriate that knowledge. Mm. And they want it. Training is something you do to dogs and tigers. Yeah, so it's even worse, right? And so we're all about development. The game changer is actually the human being has to evolve, has to develop... So the way I explain this to people is it's a quick proxy for development is age. So because most people have observed child development. So if you compare a six-year-old to a 12-year-old, something happens to the frontal cortex, the front part of your brain, which enables you to think in the abstract. Now, a six-year-old thinks in very literal terms, and a 12-year-old can think in abstract terms, which is why you don't teach algebra to a six-year-old, because they don't even understand the questions. So if you say 4x equals 16, what does x equal to a six-year-old? Their answer is crayons. My my shoe. (laughs) Like They don't even understand the question uh, because they can't think in the abstract. But when you develop, when your mind develops, you know, the six-year-old will sit in front of that algebra, 4x equals 16, what does x equal, all day and still not come up with any useful answers. A 12-year-old will answer that question in two seconds because that there's a level of capability that comes online when you develop. So think of it in like in gaming terms, when you level up. When you level up, you become capable of things that didn't even make sense at the previous level. So well, the game changer is development, not learning or training. Okay, I'm speaking from a purely personal subjective perspective here. But throughout this conversation, one of the key things that I've been picking up in the we and the out, uh, the eyepiece, is how important it is to understand yourself and the human beings that you have to deal with. And relationships and engagement are at the heart of driving performance, delivering the results. And it, it starts with finding mutual purpose, common ground. And I think th- this is where why so many wicked problems continue to 
propagate because people are looking for differences and they're tribal. So it's us and them. It's not the we, and it's not really focused on trying to find the common ground. So you're never building bridges. All you're doing is knocking them down. And so if I look at um, the economic scenario, if I look at climate change, you have all these vested interests who are intentionally creating friction and blocking improvement. Mm -hmm. Um, The tax system, the education system, if I look at the way we hire, the way we recruit, the way we onboard, the way we train, the way we develop, the way we measure, the way we compensate. All of these things are interdependent and directly affecting your business's performance. Most leaders, in my experience, do not take enough time in reflection preparation because they're always in a hurry. That's the, uh, I think that's part of the disease of the it culture, that we're always in a hurry and we've got to grow no matter what. And actually, sometimes I think what you've got to do is consolidate. You've got to take your time. You've got to step back. You've got to reflect. And you've also got to think about the unintended consequences. If you hire people who are money-motivated, self-orientated, who have a will to win and hyper-competitive, they will do anything to be on top of the leaderboard, hit their quota, and make the sale. But even if they did end up with them. Correct. Even if they did take a time to step back, if you step back and you haven't got the right map of the territory, yeah. you'll still cock it up, right? So that, that's why we're keen to get the right map. Like, what do you need to start with your I, we, it map, right? If your map is only an it map, then all of your answers will only be it answers and they won't sustain. And that's exactly what we're seeing with all these wicked problems is the reason you can watch a television show to the 20, 25 years later and hear the exact same news item is because people are seeing it one-dimensionally and coming up with one-dimensional solutions to a three-dimensional problem. So in your stepping back and reflecting, you need a much better map which will help you move forward and move forward at speed. So the speed, because we see this in our client base, you know, they're constantly asking, how do we go faster? How do we go faster? And I say, look, imagine this. As a neuroscientist, I can teach you how to speed your mind up. I can make your mind go twice as fast as it's ever happened in your entire life. And I can also treble the quality of your thinking. So imagine the next sort of two hours, I teach you how to double the speed and treble the quality. When was the last time you had a meeting with yourself in your diary to figure out how you double the uh, speed and treble the quality? And they go, what? What do you mean a meeting with myself? when did you have a meeting with yourself to figure that out? I don't have meetings with myself. Why not? I'm too busy doing things, right? So we're in this it addiction and the very thing that would transform our entire existence, taking a step back and having a good map that would enable us to double the speed and treble the quality, we simply haven't even got time to do that breakthrough because we're too it addicted. So when we're working with companies, one of the first things we try and break is their it addiction get them to understand the game changer and the speed that they think isn't going to come through more it. It's going to come through an evolution of I and we predominantly. Okay. I absolutely get that. And we're absolutely on the same page. I'd like to explore how you map an organization because it's very relevant to the next part of the conversation. So talk to me about the real organizational chart. Yeah, so I was with a client recently, a big industrial uh, global client, 
And the CEO started his presentation with this sort of boxes, you know, here, here are sort of square boxes connected by lines. Here's the org chart. And that was the start point of his entire uh, kind of discourse. Mm, thought, that must have been a phone call. We were in a room with the 60, uh, the 60 leaders of the European arm of his business. Um, and I thought, wow, uh, because the org chart was originally uh, built in the, the American railways in 1910. So why are we still using 1910 technology? I mean, that's like driving around in something that's... Well, if it fairly, works, fix it. Yeah, Oh, well, it, it doesn't work, and it, it's not actually an accurate description of what goes on. So one of the things that we've built is some uh, something called network analysis. So you actually it gives you the real org chart. So you just go and ask nine simple questions. So when we've done this across the 50 companies or so we've done this, you get about a 92% completion rate because it only takes five or six minutes to fill the questionnaire in. Nine questions, who do you go to for three operational, so information collaboration and to get stuff done? Who do you go to for energy support? And who can you be uh, open and honest with? So the trust piece and then strategically stretch your thinking, gives you guidance on the big points, who supports your development. You ask those nine questions and then you do big data analytics. It reveals to you when we've done the big data analytics, the real org chart. So what's very interesting about that is uh, many leaders are still operating with this nonsense of the org chart with the boxes and the lines, and it bears no relevance to what's actually happening on the ground. The organization, the OD, organizational design model, has already changed. So when we've looked at many organizations, the, the organizational model for the future is what we call a three-layered networked semi-permeable organization, because most organizations already are that. A lot of companies are talking about, oh, it's so siloed, we've got to dissolve the silo, or even worse, oh, this matrix, you know, this matrix organization, it's a nightmare. I'm triple hatting. I've got two bosses. I've got hard lines and dotted lines. I don't know where my allegiance really lies. All of those types of problems, actually, when you get the network analysis data, the organization is so smart, it's already resolved those problems. It's just the leaders haven't got a picture of that. So we give them that picture and we say, look, here's how your company's actually working. Here are the real influences, department by department, geography by geography, and you can quantify the influence of one person over another. So Alice might be 3.7 times more influential culturally than Frank. Frank might be 2.2 times more strategically influential than Alice. You can put some hard numbers, and the great joy of it is this isn't me as a consultant. This isn't my opinion. This is simply mining out the wisdom of the crowd because the cleverest person in any company is everybody. It's not the CEO, it's not the CPO, it's not the CIO, it's none of those people, and certainly not me. The cleverest person is everybody. So we just mine the wisdom of the crowd and present back to the board, here's the actual picture, here's your actual org chart. So let's start with that and use that to drive you forward. Okay, so that then begs the question, what are the common blind spots that leaders have because they don't understand the real org chart? Well, they're blind to at least 50% of their talent. So we did a big project recently with a big Philippine conglomerate. And they approached us saying, look, we know that you build leadership academies. We built about leadership, about 12 leadership academies to develop the, the sort of top talent pool in, in companies. Uh, and they approached us saying, could you do this for us? And we said, no. 
say, what do you mean though? We're offering you money to do something for us. And we said, well, no, because we've got a, a diagnostic step to do before we build you anything is what normally happens on these leadership academies is people are sponsored onto these programs, you know, so the uh, CIO nominates his three or four or five favorite people. The CFO nominates their favorites. So, you know, everybody nominates their favorites to go on the course. And that's the wrong thing to do because you're just wasting money. So we want to profile your top thousand and we'll tell you who to put on the course, not in our opinion, but in the wisdom of the crowd because the crowd already knows. So they wanted to build this program on strategic thinking innovation. What we found, Marcus, was that Rather than the 100 names they had, we said, no, no, you've only got 47. So only put the 47 on the program. So we immediately cut the price of the program in half for them. So saved half of all their money. I said, beyond the 47, all you're going to do if you add the rest is you dilute the program. You just got those 47. Here are the best strategic thinkers. And you've only got 47 in your entire organization. And we can tell you which part of the organization they live in but you've got the 47. So invest in those 47, you'll get a much bigger return on your investment. So that's where we started, some proper diagnostics. And again, it gets, goes back to my medical days, diagnosis before treatment. You see so many companies wading in with a well-intentioned treatment, and they haven't got proper diagnostic data before they start treating. Yeah, basically. It's unenlightened, you know. Well, it, uh, but it is malpractice. I mean, years ago, uh, 25 years ago, I, uh, for 10 years, I suffered from headaches. I'd go to the doctor every three or four months. They'd, give, um, they'd tell me I was fat. I'd work that one out. There was the 100 quid. Then they'd tell me I should give up smoking. I'd work that out. I was an, an addict, not an idiot. That was another 100 quid. And then they'd have another two and a half minutes to diagnose, prescribe, and get me the hell out of Dodge. Anyway, I did my back in. I went to the chiropractor. And after forking out 1,200 quid, um, he told me, oh, by the way, you've got flat feet. I was quite offended by this because I thought I had beautiful arches. So I went to um, the podiatrist that he suggested, a guy called Mr. Man in Dorking, and he fiddled with my feet, put them in plaster cast. And then two weeks later, these two lumps of plastic came back. And he asked me for 234 quid, which I gave him because being you know, British, you don't complain, you just pay. And I thought I'd been robbed. But anyway, my headaches disappeared within 24 hours. Never had them since, except the occasional self-inflicted one. But it was an engineering problem. It was never neurological. The problem was, because they were in a hurry, they were it-focused. Because, again, if you have an NHS that's focused on uh, league tables and putting people through in seven-and-a-half-minute increments, you're going to drop the ball, and you're in a hurry because right. you've got a waiting room packed full of patients. Correct. So, so the system's badly organized, right? So yeah. when I was a GP, uh, I often used to think, well, uh, you know, I've got 200 diabetics in this practice. Let's get them all in at the same time. Because, you know, rather than see each one of those 200 for six or seven minutes and tell them basically the same thing, let's get all 200 in and tell them all once and then get them to peer support each other. Let's approach the problem profoundly differently. Well, interestingly um, enough, I did a project about five or six years ago with Big Pharma Company, and they were very strong in pulmonary, in cardiovascular and in diabetes. And what they were doing was they were translating their knowledge into community support work. And they were working with health authorities on the basis of prevention and getting paid for a share of the reduction in spend rather than for cure, which I think was brilliant. I'm not sure where the project went because uh, it was a while back, but it did strike me that that was the right way to go about treating people. 
Indeed. And so there are very clever people in the system who've had this type of thinking. It's just usually shut down because the system is itself profoundly broken. And, and by the way, it's all complex systems. So we were talking earlier on about the criminal justice system and prisons, also a system that's profoundly broken. The political system is profoundly broken. The educational system is profoundly broken. It's just not fit for purpose. But And we've got to have the courage to lean into these and make it a lot better. And there are some really clever people in all of these systems who are crying out for that system evolution. But we can't get the debate going properly. Okay, so as a provider of wicked solutions to wicked problems, what's the wicked solution to getting the debate going? Well, it starts with, you know, uh, understanding that it's three-dimensional, not one-dimensional. There's there's literally the first start point, because you're never going to solve anything as long as you think it's one-dimensional. So once you've understood it three-dimensional, not one-dimensional, then you're into the fourth dimension, which is how do I get better as a leader? So, you know, how do we create better leaders in business, you know, better leaders in healthcare, better leaders in education? And that is an evolution of the I. And also in politics, you know, I mean, there's been a political regression globally over the last sort of 10 years. I mean, it's quite striking. I mean, as part of the Wicked and Wise series, after I wrote the original book, Wicked and Wise, How to Solve the World's Toughest Problems, I wrote a book called Crowdocracy, The End of Politics, because I thought, well, actually, we've got to change the political context because we're addicted to a democratic process that is no longer sufficiently sophisticated to deal with the complexity of the world. So this sort of punch and judy combative kind of discourse that we have in politics is well past its sell-by date. In fact, the high tide mark for democracy globally was the year 2000. There were more democracies in, on, the, on the planet in the year 2000 than there are today. So the world has started to realize democracy is not really working. And in fact, many countries, you know, it's, the data is very, very clear. So w- one thing that we wrote about in the Crowdocracy book is that if you look at the 650 MPs in the UK, only three of them actually have a majority in their own constituency. I don't know whether you knew that, but only three of them are elected by a majority. Most of them are elected by the largest minority. So if you get roughly 26 or 27% of the vote in your constituency, you're in, which means most of the people who voted in your constituency voted for somebody other than you. That's not actually democratic. Right. So we, we detail all the different ways in, in, in that democracy is broken. OK, so what's what's the next evolution beyond democracy? There are three things that have emerged already. They're already out there on the planet that go beyond democracy. It's just they're not very widespread yet. So we're still addicted to this adolescent version of decision making and governance called democracy, not realizing there are more nuanced, more sophisticated decision making processes out there that would generate better answers. So we're stuck in this electoral what, regress. what are those three? Sociocracy, which is sort of being dabbled with in Scandinavia. But the trouble is that gets stuck in the swamp of consensual hell, often reinforcing the idea that democracy is better than sociocracy. So, you know, because if it's not properly executed, sociocracy gets you into that sort of nasty consensual coalition uh, that weakens governance, uh, not strengthens it. So the first attempt to get north of democracy fails and it collapses back down to democracy. There's something emerged called holacracy, which is a whole different way of governing. And then beyond that is crowdocracy. 
So crowdocracy is how do you unlock the wisdom of the crowd? So if we, when we're teaching this into organizations, we say, look, imagine this. Most organizations run autocratically or democratically. So if you've got a board of 10 people, autocratic decision-making is the CEO basically calls the shots. We have a debate, blah, 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 blah. Right, I've listened to the debate. Uh, I've heard what you've all said. The answer's X. And the, the, so that's like 1v9. And the rest of the room go, oh, oh, well, if the boss has spoken, we better just do what the boss says. So that's autocracy. Now, some organizations flirt with co-leadership, you know, the CEO, the COO, or the CEO, the CFO. So that's monarchy, you know, the king and the queen, or uh, oligarchy, those types of systems. You often see it in bureaucracy as well, where you've got two heads better than one. So that's mum and dad, basically. And you can decide who's the mum and who's the dad in the CEO, CFO. It can handle more complexity because you've got two brains. So you've got in the boardroom, you've got two people deciding and eight people become the courteous. So autocracy is good for speed, but it's risky because you're relying on one person always making the right call. When you go to co-leadership, king and queen, mum and dad type of systems, two heads better than one, it handles more complexity, but it creates a division because all the courtiers are trying to drive a wedge between mum and dad, between the CFO and the CEO. So it creates its own pathology. And then there's this massive leap forward to democracy, which is theoretically 6v4. So democracy can handle three times the complexity of mum and dad because there's six brains deciding. But what it does is it bakes in dissent. There are four people permanently offside. So those four people spend their entire lives politically manoeuvring. So you'll see in many organizations, oh, God, I hate the bloody politics in this organization. Well, that's because you're trying to run democratically and you've baked in the dissent. That's the pathology of democracy. You bake in dissent. So you'll see this very much in political systems. The whole game becomes trying to win the swing vote, not trying to get the right answer for everybody, but trying to get the swing vote so you get the power. And even when the six, it's not the six that are deciding, it's really the two swing voters that are really holding the balance of power. So it's not even democratic. And then sociocracy is an attempt to get beyond 6v4. It usually fails and collapses back down into democracy. Holacracy gives you 10v0, and crowdocracy gives you 10,000v0. I.e., you get mass scale alignment behind a wise answer rather than a popular answer. Well, this whole concept of the wisdom of crowds really plays out when you are building your business? Because I think many organizations recruit in their own image only weaker. And the net result of that is that you tend to have an imbalance. I mean, if we look at the UK government, of the 650 MPs, how many of them have got law degrees? How many of them have studied PPE? Um, And how many of them went to Oxbridge and went to public school? That's not a homogenous group. That is a, that's just uh, an echo chamber. They may have different skin color and be different genders, but they're pretty much the same folk. And one of the most important lessons I've learned through my career is that the time best spent is the 95% of my time that I spend on the problem. And the more eyes I have on it, I've just launched a strategic alliance called the Black Pearl, uh, because we are a bunch of pirates and um, they're taking our leaf out of the 16th century pirates bombarding of uh, Panama. So they all got very pissed in Nassau. And one of them came up with the idea that they should attack uh, Panama. 
So over a week, 200 ships gathered, bombarded the crap out of it, and left with 30 billion in modern-day gold uh, equivalent. And then they dissipated, and it took the British Navy 15 years to capture them all. And I think that's going to be a much stronger model of business in the future, where long-tail businesses will collaborate, and they will be able to offer a much stronger solution because they are focused on the we and the I of the customer and their people. They're focused on creating buyer safety, employee safety, manager safety, because the middle managers, in my experience, are the most undertrained, precariously positioned people in any organization. And sales managers in particular have the most precarious position. Two bad quarters and you're out. Uh, the turnover in management and even in uh, leadership in sales is painfully high. You're looking at 12 to 18 months for a CRO, my role, and managers lasting 12 to 18 months as well. That's not even enough time to get your feet under the table. You know, it, it takes a salesperson three years to hit their full stride, typically, in most sales roles. And they're turning over every year. So you're never getting people to their full capacity. So I'm really curious how understanding the true organizational structure, moving to we and I away from it, changes the recruitment culture of an organization. When we're recruiting people, again, you've got to, we've got to assess them with different assessments. So we're, one of the things that we're quite passionate about is obsoleting the entire assessment industry because it's been measuring the wrong stuff for years. Uh, so uh, let me characterize it this way, is most of assessments are what you might call descriptive. They're describing you, Marcus, in some way. And the, and the three commonest types of description are a typology like a Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram or a strength finders like a Gallup strength finder or a personality profile like the Hogan. Now, these are all fascinating instruments. They describe you and then you get the report and you go, oh, yeah, that's me. Very interesting. It's describing me. But they were never designed to predict the future in fairness to them. So they're descriptive assessments. They were largely built in the 1920s to decide who should go into the Navy and who should go into the Air Force. And they've sort of evolved through the sort of 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. But they're really 70 years out of date, most of those instruments. But we're still using them. They're still massively widespread in most organizations. And we're saying, no, no, you need to move to a different methodology. You need developmental, ass well, developmental assessment. Right. So it doesn't matter if we go back to the six year old, it doesn't matter. You know, one dimension of personality is agreeableness. It doesn't matter whether you're an agreeable six year old or a disagreeable six year old. It doesn't matter whether you're an introverted six year old or an extroverted six year old. The reason you're failing is you're six and this job needs a 12 year old. Right. <laughs> so it's nothing to do with your personality. It's nothing to do with that unique set of strengths or your INTJ or your ENFP. You're failing because you lack maturity and sophistication. So we need developmental assessments when we're recruiting. And particularly in a world where, particularly in the, in the IT space and technology, where by the time you've got these people on board, and you know, particularly senior people, they're three months or six months before they've exited their previous company and then they've got a, a, a ramp up into the new company. By the time you've got them on board, what you were recruiting for them has changed anyway. So rather than recruit for the capability you think, what you really need to recruit is recruit for sophistication because somebody who's sufficiently sophisticated will figure it out. And so it's not, 
you know, a personality. It's not typology. It's not strengths. We should stop measuring that stuff. But organizations are addicted to those descriptive assessments. We need developmental assessments in recruitment. For recruitment purposes, I get it. Um, what what uh, developmental assessments would you recommend? Well, we've seen in organizations there are hundreds of lines of development, right? But the good news is only eight really matter. So, for example, I could assess how sophisticated Marcus is as a chef, right? But if you're not running a restaurant, that's irrelevant. Yeah. Right. So there's no point in measuring your chef sophistication. So in, in most organizations, there are five lines that you can't see, what we call the internal lines of development. So that is energy level. So what energy level are you operating with? Are you running on fumes or have you got a full tank? So we can quantify using standard medical technology how much energy you've got to do the job. Now that's important. Then you've got emotional intelligence. And then you've got cognitive sophistication. So they are different things, clearly. You know, you can have a, a strategy house consultant who's very high on the cognitive sophistication and very low on the emotional intelligence, classically, right? These are different intelligences or different lines of development. So you've got physical energy, you've got emotional intelligence, you've got cognitive sophistication, you've got values sophistication. There are eight value systems in the world, and we use that a lot in recruitment, you know, which one are you operating from? Then you've got something very interesting called ego maturity, which is effectively, you know, are you a six-year-old? Are you a 12-year-old? Are you a 14-year-old? Or you're an adult? You know, we can quantify that. So that's not being pejorative. Most people you'll meet might be 30, 40, 50 on the outside, but on the inside, they're 14 or eight. And we can measure it. I always maintain that adults are children trapped in adult bodies. And um, exactly almost everybody that I know has this, or everyone has this narrative going on and that it tells them where they fit in life, um, what their rights are, what their entitlements are, what they are worthy of. And that speaks to ego maturity very, very closely. And that's an eight-year-old, right? So that's basically at the level of eight-year-old development, you learn these rules. It's basically a brainwashing, usually imposed by your parents, where you, you develop certain beliefs about what's right and wrong, you know, how the world works, what a good corporate citizen does. And you learn all these rules. That's the eight-year-old. And then what happens is when you get to 14, you know, in the early teenage years, you start to question the rules. And then you get, that's why you get teenage conflict. And usually the parents try to suppress that and try and impose. Now, regardless of who wins the teenage battle, when that person leaves home at 18, a much bigger parent called society pushes you back into the eight-year-old nature and imposes its rules. You've got to get a job, you've got to get a career, you've got to get a car, you've got to get a partner, you've got to have kids. You've got all of these rules that you then have to follow. So most people go back to sleep and remain an eight-year-old for the rest of their life. Not really, And this is not, again, not being, you can actually measure this stuff. So those are the five internal lines, physical, emotional intelligence, cognitive sophistication, values, and ego. And then there are three lines that you can see. So imagine you're the Dalai Lama on the inside. You've got massive altitude across those five internal lines, but you live in a cave. Ah, right. So your networks matter right? And then you've got to behave, you know, it's, does all that internal sophistication relate to behavior? So you've got behavior, networks, and impact in the networks are the three external lines. So there are eight lines of development that we measure in leaders. And the goal here is to become more sophisticated, i.e. level up in each of those eight lines. 
And there's pretty good evidence. So there's a very interesting article in Harvard Business Review not so long ago, looking at leaders with greater maturity and sophistication can drive transformation more quickly and more successfully than immature leaders. Not a surprise, but it's not down to personality or typology or strengths. It's down to sophistication and maturity. Okay. So that's really very, very interesting. And if we are then looking at development once people are on payroll, are those assessments and psychometrics of any value in your opinion at that point? Absolutely. We do this all the time. So one of the things we do when we're coaching exec boards, and we're currently coaching about 20 or 25 exec boards in around the world, is we'll look at the value system of each individual on that board. Say there's 10 people, and then we'll look at it collectively. So you see the individual values and then the collective values of the system. And so oftentimes you can see that there are tensions in this leadership team, not because of personality clash, which is the misdiagnosis, but because what matters to individuals in that team is different. And they're not all operating from the same value system. So, Right, so it's values and motivation. Right, values yeah. and motivation. So you quantify that, and there are only eight value systems. And we've got a database of about 12,000 leaders from all over the world in every geography and market sector. So these eight value systems exist in the world. And once leadership teams understand that, it completely transforms their ability to relate and, effectively and to each other. What are those eight? Well, very quickly, uh, so each has a color to help you remember. So beige is survival, right? Hand to mouth. There's an upside and a downside. So the upside is a beige, value system one. You'll see it in sub-Sahara. You'll see it in the uh, recently unemployed. A lot of people have collapsed back down to beige in the pandemic, you know, just trying to survive. Individual, hand to mouth, daily, no long-term perspective. So the upside is I survive. The downside is there's no progress. So mankind was at this level for thousands of years. And then these individuals who are sat by the road watching the world go by suddenly notice somebody else is also sat by the road watching the world go by. So they start to clump together, safety in numbers. So you get tribes, purple. So tribal cultures, and you'll see this in business. So you'll get the finance tribe, the sales tribe, the HR tribe, uh, the marketing tribe. And sometimes the allegiance to the tribe is greater than it is to the company. So when you take over a team as a leader, your first thing is to create a sense of belonging and a sense of psychological safety. That's your first task. So you get tribal leadership emerges. The downside is there's no strong direction because you've got mob rule. So if you've ever stood on the terraces, you know, watching a soccer match, nobody's really in charge. Somebody starts chanting about the referee, we all join in. Somebody starts chanting about the opposition, we all join in. Nobody's in charge of that mob. So that spawns, it's the downside that spawns the evolution into red leadership. So this is the first proper leadership you see in organizations. That autocrat grabs the reins. And on the upside, they're the people who make stuff happen. So they're brilliant in turnaround. They're brilliant in startup. You often see a lot of red leaders in politics and sales. A lot of celebrities operate from this level. It's a power-based move. And it's all about me. So yes, they make things happen, but the downside is egocentricity. And so the collective then gang together to curb the excesses and blue leadership emerges, which puts discipline, structure, order, and process, and it stabilizes the system. So we're not at the vagaries of that individual autocrat. And so we stabilize the system, but the downside is we overcook the rules and we get rigidity, inflexibility, and in extreme forms, fundamentalism. 
And it's that downside that spawns the evolution of orange, which is breaking free of the rules, adaptive, scientific, trial and error, objectivity, uh, you know, a mechanism, pragmatism, and all of that. So the upside is wealth creation. So once we've got a stable platform, we can go for growth. So orange is about wealth creation. And we saw that level of leadership collapse in 2008. Essentially, we saw 2008 was the sort of pinnacle of the orange leadership. And with the global financial crisis, the whole thing collapsed in greed and avarice and manipulation. So then green leadership emerges, and 20% of the global population have now made it to the green level. In 1960, only 2% of the global population were in green, but now it's 20%. So we're getting better, but we're not getting better fast enough. And sorry, what's green? Green is about care, people-centricity, inclusivity. So hence, it started in the 60s with civil rights, and then it became you know, sustainability, you know, COP26, fair trade, carbon footprint, diversity inclusion, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. That's all the green value system. So a bit more people-centric and a bit more inclusive. But in the last five years, the wheels have come off badly of green leadership. So it's the leading edge. Only less than 2% of the global planet have made it beyond green. So it's currently the leading edge, not the cutting edge, it's the leading edge of leadership globally. So uh, in organizations, you've had an HR director, which is basically orange, becomes in green a, a CPO, a chief people officer. So even the term changes and you've got this halfway house between green and orange as a CHRO. So you've got HRDs in orange and CPOs in green. So you'll see that's really where the leading edge is in green. But the wheels have come off in an attempt to be inclusive. We've created a post-truth world horror show where nobody's sure what the facts are anymore, amplified by social media. So there's a massive leap forward then into yellow, which is disruptive and innovative, so Sean Parker would be an example of this. You know, one guy virtually single-handedly destroys a music industry through Napster and BitTorrent and file sharing. So that kind of, uh, let's change the business model, Airbnb, uh, Uber, you know, that innovative, disruptive paradigm shifting innovation, that's yellow. But on the downside, it's overcomplicating it and people can't understand what they're talking about most of the time. So, and then ultimately you get turquoise. Um, so those are the eight value systems. And Most, turquoise is? Turquoise is basically long-term unintended consequences, system balance and system harmony. But because they take a much longer-term perspective and they're operating with a massive data set, they often look indulgent and, and, and tolerant of poor performance, which is not the case. It's a misdiagnosis. But because they're taking a longer-term perspective, they'll often let things play out because the learning and the evolution in the system is more useful than fixing the, the fire right here, right now. So those are the eight value systems, and we can quantify individual leaders uh, and teams. So when you're doing strategy work, for example, you want to start with the yellow ideation, the disruptive, innovative ideas. Then the yellow people should pass the ball to the orange people who will filter and figure out of those 10 crazy ideas, eight of them are rubbish, two of them will make money. Once it's gone to the orange people, you pass it to the blue people who will put the detail on the plan. Once it's gone to the blue people, they pass it to the purple people who will do the risk assessment. And then the, the turquoise people will come in and go, okay, well, what about the long-term consequences we haven't considered? And then you give it to the green people who will align the organization. And at the last point, you pass it to the winger, the red person, who ignites the whole thing. 
Okie cokey. That's very interesting. Okay. I can see many applications of that in the world that I occupy because um, a lot of what I do is around collaboration, strategic alliances, and the basic premise is how do you do less but better on purpose? Because I, I think the big lie that technology companies have sold is the lie around efficiency because efficiency is the altar upon which effectiveness has been sacrificed. And I think it's really, really important that leaders and managers take the time to ask the question, well, why are we doing it this way? Well, that, that's part of it, right? But uh, when people talk about efficiency, they mainly talk about it, process efficiency. The big game changer for efficiency is speed of mind. So one of the CEOs I've been coaching who ah. is a tech company CEO tells me he can literally think 10 times faster than he used to be able to before I coached him. 10 times. So that's efficiency. It's I efficiency. So we've got to get off the addiction to it efficiency. Efficiency isn't just about it. Of course, you can design a process that's more efficient, but if you've got a numpty managing that process, it's still slow. So I, and then you've got we, I said to you right at the beginning, we is the final frontier, the relationship space. If you've got a brilliant individual who thinks 10 times faster, but he's got dysfunctional relationships, again, it slows down. So the real unlock for speed and efficiency is in the increased maturity sophistication of the individual and much stronger nuanced relationships between people. That's where you get the efficiency. It doesn't all come here, maybe two or three more percent out of some processed engineering, but most of the speed will come through more mature people who are working much more effectively as a collective and a collaboration. Alan, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've loved every minute of it. I'd love to have you back. Be delighted to come back, Marcus. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Alan, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have probably have ignored? Well, in fact, I did follow this piece of advice and it oh, came good. from my great hero, Joseph Campbell, or one of my heroes, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell is the guy, is a professor of comparative religion and one of the world's experts on mythology. He's the guy that inspired George Lucas to do Star Wars. And in fact, one of my four sons is called Joseph after Joseph Campbell. And oh, Joseph, wow. Cam yeah, Joseph Campbell had this lovely phrase, follow your bliss. Yeah. Follow your bliss, right? Which is figure out what really matters to you in life and do that. And that's what I did. So a lot of people thought I was absolutely nuts to resign as a medical doctor, you know, the safety and the security of that money and you're paid well and the pension pot and all of that. But it wasn't my bliss. Mm -hmm. You know, I realized very early on that my destiny lay elsewhere. I was about scale play and getting upstream. And so I resigned 25 years ago, and I've been doing this work with leaders ever since. And it's much more enjoyable, a lot more challenging, but also a lot more enjoyable, trying to help leaders to wake up and grow up and uh, be a force for good in the world, rather than perpetuate the problems and the wicked issues. Well, what's been your best lesson for the last uh, 18, 24 months? Really, that it starts with you absolutely have to practice what you preach, because it's tough. Right. So you've got to drink your own Kool-Aid. And in fact, I recently celebrated uh, uh, my 60th birthday. And, you know, a lot of people said, my, my goodness, you know, number one, you don't look 60, but you've got the energy of a 40 year old. And I said, well, 
you know, it's nice and kind of you to say that. I'm just as passionate now as I was when I was 20. And it's really because some of the things that we teach leaders about resilience and energy management, my wife and I are big believers. We taught our kids and we teach our clients is we can transform our lives. We're not helpless victims in the face of overwhelming complexity. There's tons of stuff we can do. We've got to become activists. And the start point of that is knowledging up. So podcasts like this, helping people get excited about what's possible for them. You can game change your own life by leveling up. So if people are curious about that, reach out to us, talk to us, uh, make contact. We're naturally collaborative. We're very open. I'll be delighted to, to hear from anybody. Excellent. Alan, what would you recommend people read, watch or listen to to understand wicked problems? Obviously, there's wicked and wise. Uh, anything else that you'd recommend? Well, I've written 10 books, all on specific dimensions of you know leadership and how to solve the world's toughest problems. So if people are interested in the political dimension, read Crowdocracy. If they want to know about the nature of change, the book I've got coming out in January is called Step Change, The Leader's Journey, which is really based on Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey's work. So that's a real fun book, comes out in January, because it's the 12 steps and four phases of change. And each of the 12 steps, I wrote an example of how this plays out in Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, The Wizard of Oz, to help people understand the cultural references and know which step they're really at. So they can start to get skillful, uh, you know, change capability, because moving forward, when the world's changing so fast, leaders have to have change capability. They have to understand the 12 steps of change. They have to understand their own journey and how to go from one step to another faster. Excellent. Alan, how can people get hold of you? Just send us an email. So complete-coherence, C-O-H-E-R-E-N-C-E.com. Or just Google me, Dr. Alan Watkins. You'll see I've done a number of TED Talks, so you can watch some of those. So just email us at the company. Uh, We're pretty responsive. You find me on LinkedIn. So just message me, and then we'll see if we can help. I'd also recommend um, Marcus Kirsch's book, by the way, uh, The Wicked Company. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you've had a chance to read that, but that's well worth a read. Uh, Alan, thank you. My pleasure. Really good talking to you, Marcus. Wonderful. Really enjoyed it as well. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and it sparked your imagination, then please do get in touch with Alan or with myself. And you can email me marcus at last-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. If you feel the urge, pop across to Apple Podcasts and leave a a review. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.